The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcast content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. We are able to uh, bring on our guest, Anissa Asabi George. She's an American running in the race for mayor of Boston in the September 14th preliminary election race next week. Ms. George is an American politician who serves as an at-large member of the Boston City Council. Her father is Tunisian and her mother is Polish. Well, I can just imagine the food that you must be enjoying at your house, Denise. Uh, welcome to the program. Great. Thank you so much for having me on uh, this morning. And yes, it was it was an interesting palate in a, a regular buffet that we had at home growing up. Yeah, and I'm sorry about the technical issues that happened. I, I'm not sure what happened, but everything is streaming live now on radio in Washington and in Detroit and live on the Arab News Facebook page. Um, we just have to do a little no worries, adjustment Ray. with the audio. I'm the, of four, four, I'm the mother of four teenage boys who are getting ready to start school tomorrow, so I've learned through the years to roll with the punches. Now, you know, being in Chicago, this accent that you have, is so phenomenal because it reminds Boston and Chicago are like sister cities. <laughs> I love that Boston accent. That is phenomenal. Now, listen, tell us a little bit about yourself first. Um, uh, your father's Tunisian. Your mother is Polish. Um, both immigrants or they were born here in the country. Give us a little background on your family and, and yourself. No, thanks, Ray, for uh, welcoming me this morning and letting me share a little bit about my story and talk about the race uh, and the run for mayor of Boston. Both my parents immigrated to this country. They have two very different immigration stories. My mother, as you mentioned, is Polish. My grandparents, her parents, my grandmother at the age of 14 was taken from her home in Poland to work in a labor camp in Germany. My grandfather was in the Polish army, became a prisoner of war. They met in a displaced persons camp in Germany post-World War II where my mother was born. They immigrated to the United States when my mother was little and, you know, eventually made their home in the Dorchester neighborhood of Boston. My dad is Tunisian, um, went to work in France as a young man. My mother had gone to school and studied French to be a French teacher, so found herself visiting France, met my father. He followed her here on a 90-day fiancé visa which, as you can imagine, um, my mother, you know, bringing him home, it's different than, you know, meeting someone at the coffee shop or going on a regular date. But he, you know, my mother is Polish, Polish Catholic. My father, obviously Tunisian and Arab, a Muslim. And with a little bit of negotiating, um, my parents were eventually married and, you know, lived, lived a, a wonderful life for almost 40 years. Unfortunately, I, I lost my father about 10 years ago. But my, it was my, me, my brother, my two sisters grew up here in, in the house that my mother grew up in, in obviously a very diverse upbringing, um, you know, two very different cultures and um, ethnicities and religions. But for my parents, education and hard work and community were a big part of their lives and something that they shared 
uh, very rigorously with me, especially the school piece, and you know, just grateful for the opportunities both my parents and, and their experiences gave me. Now, now I'm running for mayor of Boston. At you know, I've spent the last six years as a city councilor, and just grateful for the opportunity to serve my city, and look forward to serving it in a new capacity. That's an amazing story. To get into politics, what got you to? think that, hey, maybe this is my future in politics. It's so contentious, and especially Boston is exact, and I'm sure Boston is just like Chicago. It's rough and tough politics here. I can only imagine what it's like in Boston. What made you want to get into that? As I say, it's, it's about the same. It's about the same here. When I was in high school here in Boston, I, I got engaged in student government, became a member of my school's student council, and then we have a citywide Boston Student Advisory Council that does a lot of work, especially around education and student, you know, student voice and, and all of that work. So at a young age, um, actually, it was former Ray Flynn, who is, you know, well-known as the former ambassador, um, you know, had this a little bit of a battle around schools' budgets and, you know, became really sort of upset about some of the political stuff that was happening in our city and, you know, at a young age, that, that municipal government is so important to what's happening in everyday life. And said to my parents, said to my father specifically, someday I'm going to run for mayor of Boston. I'm 15, 16 really? years old at this point. And my, my father said he was very, very direct and said an Arab girl with an Arab name will win nothing in this city. You know, consider a life in law. Consider, go to business school. Do, you know, do, do something else. And, you know, he was always my biggest cheerleader, my biggest supporter. He always encouraged me to, you know, strive and set high goals. But he just didn't see a future for me in politics because of the city that he had come to. And his experience was not always an easy one, being a, an immigrant to the city, being a foreigner, being an Arab, being a Muslim. So... I'd always had an interest, so eventually went on um, to college and started teaching, and I taught for 13 years. My father was over the moon that I chose a career in education. But, you know, politics and municipal government just kept calling my name, and I think, you know, today I think a lot about my father's experience. I think a lot about the words he shared with me as a young kid, and I jokingly say, you know, it's about the work, especially as a former teacher. I'm a small business owner. It's about helping our vulnerable residents. But I also on occasion tap into my 15-year-old self. I'm going to prove my father wrong. As an Arab, as a good Arab girl, should always strive to do. You know, and, and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to serve. My understanding is I'm the only Tunisian-American elected to office in the country. Uh, a number of years ago, I did an a, um, exchange program to Tunisia and was excited to meet some other elected Tunisian Americans and there was none and it made me sort of sad and, and I hope that Arab American Arab American women in particular will look at opportunities in, in politics and in government and elected office. Yeah, and this is great I think for Arab Americans. They should know who you are and, and it is uh, interesting uh, to be the first Tunisian to hold public office. You've been a member of the uh, Boston City Council it said delegate at large, large, and I'm not and sure how that's sure different how from different Chicago. Uh, we call them aldermen, uh, members of our city council. You actually sit on the city council and have been a member uh, on the city council. And it is it at large, meaning you're elected from the entire city or from a ward? 
That's exactly it. So we have a 16, uh, sorry, a 13 member city council. Nine are districts. So the city of Boston is divided up into nine sections. And then four of us are citywide or at large. So I'm elected by the entire city of Boston and have been, I'm in my third term now. And just excited to, to run for mayor and excited to be a front runner, excited about the feedback and the momentum we have going into the last, I think it's six days now. To the preliminary. We have a preliminary here in Boston, the nonpartisan race. So the top two vote getters will move on to the general election or the final election, November second. And I bet running citywide actually gave you an advantage running in this election, right? If you were just an award, who would know you? I mean, they read about you and things, but running citywide—that's probably giving you a base because, according to the latest polls I've seen, you know, you're neck and neck with uh, I think it's Michelle Wu. Um, who's also a delegate at large, I think, a member of the uh, Boston City Council. And, you know, they are saying yeah, well, she's leading she's slightly, leading. but, you know, there's a margin of error there. And I think it's tied. I think you're doing great. You two are the leaders. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Ray. And, um, yes, and, and this is a very interesting race. We have, you know, five sort of primary candidates and, you know, really feel that going into these last couple of days, um, feel the momentum of being a front runner and having an at-large base, having a citywide presence and being elected citywide all of these times now certainly is helpful when we think about, you know, strength, we think about numbers, we think about name recognition and certainly the opportunity to grow that becomes a little bit easier when you have a base already um, laid. And of the five candidates, one came from the former administration and then the other four of us are members of the Boston City Council, two at large and two district representatives. Was it hard running as a woman and an Arab American in your first election, the very first time you ran? Um, I'm going to assume that was about 12 years ago, right around then, because you have four-year terms? No, two-year terms, two-year terms. Oh, so okay, two-year terms. The mayor has four-year terms. The council has two-year terms, which I... I, I um, you know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic when you think about the, the balance between the city council and the mayor. We have a strong mayor system here in Boston. So I ran actually eight years ago. I lost my first race. There were 19 of us on the ballot the first time I ran at large and finished fifth in the top four uh, vote getters win. So although it was a loss, it was a very successful run. And I ran again um, in 2015, and I beat an 18-year incumbent. Uh, to earn my seat on the council and have continued to improve both in numbers and rank in every election since the um, you know the work is the work is hard campaigning is hard I'm you know when I started this uh, effort in 2013 my boys I have four children who are now my oldest is 16 and my 15 year old triplets so they were you know wow. eight years wow. younger and you know certainly certainly creates some uh, an added dynamic to running for office, being the mother of four children. You know, my husband and I have worked out a pretty solid system in, in how we, we manage all of this. And I've got a great, you know, sort of community around me. My mother, you know, is still with us and local. My in-laws are local. My sisters, you know, are local. And, and that's really wonderful that they share um, in this experience with me. And, you know, as much as, especially with my boys, with my kids, I try to limit their exposure because politics can be difficult. It can be, get a little chippy, uh, especially in these final days. So 
you know, working and educating my boys, especially on what they see on social media, what they're experiencing, what they're hearing, and, and to try to keep open lines of communication with them. What was being an Arab, uh, can, were you identified as Arab when you first ran? Did that come up or was that an issue at all? Uh, now it's Boston has changed considerably, but you know, even eight years ago when you first ran, lost, then came back two years later and won, was it an issue or is Boston acclimating to the growth of the ethnic identity there? It's 65% are people of color. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely been a, a changing um, dynamic here in the city of Boston. I'd say the first time I ran in 2013, it was more interesting to be a female in the race. And, and those dynamics have shifted incredibly. When I, um, in 2013, the first time I ran, there was only one woman on the council. It's Congresswoman Presley now, who's now in the Congress. That year, added a second woman. When I joined the council in 2015, two more of us had joined. The next two wow. term, wow. two more women had joined. So that the, the number of women, now we have a majority female council, which was only eight years ago. We had one woman sitting on the Boston City Council. And, you know, the Arab population here in Boston is growing, um, but it's growing slowly. And we see it in certain parts of our city. We don't have sort of a critical mass here in the city. So being an Arab comes up in some conversations. It's more of... Um, like an, you know, an inquisition, like an education and an introduction to the Arab community, uh, to the Tunisian uh, population and sort of culture and, and, and religion. We do have in Boston a very large Lebanese population. And again, in parts of our city, they, they tend to, to be, and they've been really great supporters in this race. As, as an Arab woman, engaging with them has been a lot of fun. And sort of reconnecting with my own roots. I haven't been, um, I was in Tunisia just a few years ago, and obviously with COVID and the pandemic and all that, it's limited my ability to, to get there for a visit. I look forward to returning to Tunisia. My family is there, my grandmother, my aunt, my uncles, and, and I tell my children, hundreds of cousins, and I look forward to returning. I actually, when I went a few years ago, we had initiated conversations around creating a sister city program between Tunis and Boston, and we nice, think about nice. the very very similar uh, cities that we have, whether it's, you know, a harbor city, the, the role of, of trade, the role of art, the, you know, the role of just culture and community. And um, your, uh, the, the background there, I know they're like the, the woman power, I think, in politics. We've seen a rise in that. Four of their, uh, actually seven candidates, seven five candidates. have really five done very really well, or at least four, and the ones, those four out of the seven that have done well, all four have been women, correct? That what? What? what is the female mayor. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I mean, what is it? You're talking about a very macho city. If and again, I'm talking about Irish. When I say Irish and politics, it's redundant. You know, in Chicago, and I'm assuming it's like that in Boston. I, I love Boston. I've been there so many times. Um, what is it, what do you think has changed that allowed women to really kind of step to the front of the stage and to dominate this election? It's amazing. Every mayor prior to now has been a white male, uh, mostly Irish, I think. Yep. Yep. No, that's, that's accurate. 
I think that, um, you know, women are coming into their own power here in the city of Boston. And, and a lot of that, obviously, the four of us come from the city council. So it's about building bench strength. It's about, you know, and that's the bench. The city council, in many ways, has become the bench uh, for the mayor's office. Although mayors come from our state legislature, our former mayor, now Secretary Walsh, was a state representative uh, prior to, to becoming mayor of the city. Before him, Mayor Menino actually came from the city council. So there is a there is a little bit of a pipeline that we're able to cultivate, but women are becoming more involved in political life, running for office, and winning. And that has been a real shift, especially over the last, you know, five years or so, or in, if you look a little bit further back to 10 years, you saw that tide begin to change. And this is about women in public life, women sort of taking the lead, which is so important for women to do, but also high-quality women candidates. That's also really important. You want a woman in office, because that's important, representation matters, but you want the right woman in office. You want the woman who has the skill set and the experiences to lead, and I believe that's me, and, and I think the, the the voters of Boston, the residents of Boston, see that as well, and that's why I've done so well in the polls. What What do you think is the going to be the most deciding issue, the most important issue in this election? What is it that voters are asking you to address? Yeah, so there's a few things that we're talking the most about here in Boston and in this race. Housing and the cost of housing, the cost of living here in the city of Boston has grown uh, tremendously, and Boston has become too expensive for too many. So housing is a critical issue. We talk a lot about education in our school system. Boston Public Schools, the oldest public school system in the nation, is and continues to have uh, still too many struggles when we think about our kids. And for me, as a former educator, a former classroom teacher of 13 years, that has been a priority of mine to improve the quality of education across the board for all of our kids. Certainly the pandemic has been an issue when we think about COVID, our work to recover from this, um, this, you know, just pin, this issue, this public health crisis, this healthcare issue. But we also have a significant um, challenge around the opioid crisis and homelessness and mental illness here in the city of Boston. We have a growing uh, population of our city's residents who are unsheltered um, and also dealing with substance use disorder. So that's also significant. And, you know, when I think about the job and the role of being mayor, the tasks of being mayor, the responsibility of leading the city, it's around the public health crisis, it's around public safety, it's around climate action, and it's also about basic city services. I hear that across our city in so many of our neighborhoods, that, you know, filling potholes and building playgrounds and making sure the trash is picked up, basic sort of everyday city services are critical to every city's residents' quality of life. And we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that we're responsible to the, the needs of our city's residents from sort of the bigger issues to those smaller, n not less important, but sometimes not seen as critical uh, to the operation, the function, and the experience of the city. I'm going to guess your husband is Lebanese. George is a very popular Lebanese name, or am I wrong? Yeah, you're actually wrong. I'm sorry to say that. He wow. is um, American uh, several generations, too. The George is just... Um, That's not his fault. Part Albanian in there. 
Oh, that, oh, that's interesting. Okay, Albanian. That's what a mix. I mean, that has to be phenomenal. The background you have, the candidates running in office. Um, I know that we pretty much cut into all the time we were going to have with you, but um, what what is your website if people want to support you to get more information? Where should they go if they want to look you up? No, Ray, I appreciate that. And anyone that wants to engage with the campaign or take a better look or a deeper look at both my bio, my story, my history, but also my policy pages, because we've got a lot of work to do. And I'm, I'm a big believer in partnership and all of our policy docs are dynamic documents. So give them a look and, and share some feedback. You can go to my website, which is anisaforboston.com, A-N-N-I-S-S-A-F-O-R, boston.com. I spell it with two N's a little bit of a trick my dad played on my mother they didn't know whether they'd have an arab name or an american name and so they made up a name that is actually an arab name so that's how i ended up with the two ends just way thank you so much for including me this morning and welcoming me on listen it was great and i apologize for the technical issues but it was so nice that we're able to do this we wish you the best the election is next week uh a week uh to uh, one week from today on uh, September 14th, correct? And then the... Uh, Tuesday, it's last six days, Tuesday the 14th. And then I'm, I'm hopeful to go on to the general and I look forward to talking to you again between September 14th and November 2nd. That'll be great and we won't have technical issues. My guest, Anissa Asabi George, uh, the website is anissaforboston.com. Is that correct? Okay, the doctor is that right. That's Anissa, correct. Is a, uh, Anissa is A N N I S S A for Boston. Anissa, thank you for joining us again. It was a pleasure meeting you. Good luck next week. We want to see what happens. Thank you. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with Abed Ayub at ADC. We'll be right back right after these messages. Bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com. News that matters. I hear you good. So uh, we're going to do a quick sound check uh, to see if the uh, we had a little technical issue. Oh, good. Locations in Bloomfield Hills and five we're having some issues in with the uh, first interview with the audio. But everything is perfect now. Dr. Nicholas Shama is one of the leading reproductive endocrinologists in Michigan and Ohio. Dr. Shama has performed over 10,000 IVF cases and has helped thousands of couples fulfill their dreams of parenthood. American board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive endocrinology and infertility, Dr. Nicholas Shama is a very caring, compassionate expert physician that understands not only the medical but also the emotional toil of infertility on his patients. When it's time, get personalized care from Dr. Nicholas Shama at IVF Michigan Fertility Centers in Michigan and Ohio. Call toll-free 855-952-9600. 855-952-9600. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. 
they arrived at a safe, effective vaccine. And hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination. Freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. And welcome back. The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcast content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. And welcome back to the Ray Hanania Show here at WNZK AM 690 Radio in Detroit, where we're broadcasting live and at WDMV AM 700 Radio in Washington, D.C., where we're broadcasting live. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com slash Arab News. So many things I wanted to tell you about before our interview with Anissa Asabi George. Uh, one of them is the Arab News newspaper has a uh, special uh, section coming out on a look back on the 20th anniversary, the commemoration of September 11th. Um, and that's going to be the topic of this segment with me is uh, Abed Ayub, the legal director for the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. Abed, thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thank you, Ray. Always great to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you guys. I mean, ADC is just a phenomenal organization. You guys do so much. Uh, given all the things that happen to Arab Americans, I don't know how you even have time to do a radio show with me. <laughs> we'll always uh, make time for you, so thank no, you. I know, I know you do. L listen, I, obviously, a lot of Americans... Uh, this week are thinking back on the terrible tragedy of September 11th, the terrorist attacks. They were horrendous. Um, I just remember how my life changed. The job I was at changed. The way people looked at me. I had people come up to me and say, hey, why did my people do that? And I'm thinking, what, these people from the south side of Chicago did something? Um, we were kind of, we were always discriminated against as Arabs in this country, in this country. but after September 11th, it took a kind of like a bifurcated sharp turn. On the one hand, it was real bad. On the other hand, people with some sensibilities started to look at us a little more serious um, and fairly. So we got advantages and disadvantages. But one of the issues that always bothered me after September 11th and in the weeks and months that followed were these killings that took place. They called them backlash killings. Yeah. Not all of them were even Arab. A lot of them were Muslim. Um, all you had to do was look Middle Eastern. A lot of them were Sikh, uh, Indian, or Pakistani. And Americans were so angered, they went out and they murdered people. Um, tell us a little bit about this. I know ADC uh, did a report on this. I've written a number of stories about it. Give us an overview of how serious was it? Was it just a fluke? 
a few people or was it serious enough? And, uh, you know, uh, do Americans even recognize these victims? So thank you, Ray, and thank you for covering that point. And look, the, the aftermath and the backlash after 9-11 was serious. And anytime you have a, a loss of life due to violence, whether it be through, you know, the, the, the senseless terror attacks that occurred, you know, that day, um, you know, the, it, it's always serious. And the aftermath um, and the backlash from the community is something that should, against the community is something that should be taken seriously as well. And as, as you mentioned, there were a number of, you know, backlash murders. The first um, the first victim of a hate crime after 9-11 was actually a Sikh American, Balbar Sodi, who was shot while um, uh, in Arizona while working uh, at a gas station. So it's, it's these in, out in Mesa, Arizona. This, these types of incidents played themselves out shortly after 9-11 in the years following after 9-11. And I think I report cited nearly a dozen murders or so that took place, uh, a dozen or so murders that took place, you know, in the immediate aftermath you know all the way from mesa arizona out in michigan minneapolis we had some one in los angeles so it's definitely something that's serious i don't know how much you know this information many americans are aware of i don't know if they um, understand that this happened or even aware that this happened but it, it, it did happen and this is not even this is this these cases this is not even talking about the employment discrimination cases and the other general discrimination or, you know, verbal abuse that we continue to see. These are, you know, the serious, uh, you know, violent hate crimes. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is the killings, this backlash, which I think should be uh, taken more seriously than other things. Uh, it kind of blended in with the wave of discrimination. Another would say, oh, yeah, they discriminated against Arabs and killed some. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you know, there are 2,996 people died at the Twin Towers, at the uh, Pentagon, and uh, in a field in Pennsylvania um, because of the terrorists. But another two dozen died in the weeks and months after because of what happened. They should be given the same, I think, should be given the same treatment. They should be recognized during these commemorations. Uh, people for it's I think it's disrespectful as an as an American that uh, nobody is taking it as other than obviously ADC and a number of groups. Um, but mainstream American society isn't taking it serious enough to say, wow, there were two dozen people that were murdered as a result of September 11th. They're victims of September 11th. I mean, issue maybe they should get compensation, their families the way the terror, the victims of the September 11th terrorism were supported. But we've never even got to the point where we were even really officially acknowledged as connected to that. We're just part of a wave of discrimination. You're absolutely right. I mean, there, there, there needs to be more recognition to these victims. There also needs to be an understanding that it hasn't stopped. Uh, you know, the hate crimes continue. The violent hate crimes have continued. And this is this is born out of the September 11th attack. It's it's directly an, an aftermath and an effect of that. So even though we're 20 years, you know, after the 9/11 attacks, we are still seeing the fallout against the community and on, on many fronts, on the violent hate crimes attacks and on the more passive discrimination we see in the workplace and in other areas of our life. So it's it's yeah, it's definitely out there. I, I know that four of the cases were clearly. Uh... You know, at least the official reports were that, yes, they're victims of uh, uh, backlash. They were specifically targeted because of who they were. 
um, the other maybe uh, uh, 18 issues, uh, incidents and tragedies of killings were kind of disputed. But I think it was in part because the police, they they never thought to say how significant is it that uh, like Ali Elman Soup, who was in Detroit, yeah. um, he was with uh, his girlfriend. She, her old boyfriend came in, was angry, shot him. And said at the time, you know, you deserve it because you're one of those people that attacked us on September 11th. The police didn't give weight to that. You know, I don't know if September 11th may not have happened. Would Ali Al-Mansoup still be alive? And I think he would be. He would be. And look, you, you touched on one important point, and that's, you know, law enforcement was not equipped after 9-11 to address hate crimes and to address our concerns. You know, there wasn't a category for an anti-Arab um, hate crime on the DOJ form till about 2011 or 12, which, after ADC intervened, and we petitioned for inclusion on that box. And hate crime laws are, are generally hard to, hate crime reporting is generally hard to enforce. Many municipalities won't bring hate crimes charges or won't even investigate hate crime charges. So it's, it's definitely a, a flaw in the law enforcement and in the, the, the way these charges are brought. Uh, and it's an issue we've picked up on over the past uh, 20 years and something that is to be taken seriously, but you're absolutely right. Law enforcement was not in any way equipped. Uh, they didn't have the understanding of the community. They didn't have the knowledge of, I think, even hate crime laws within their own districts or jurisdictions. And that's why we see such little uh, action that was brought against some of these perpetrators. And, and I'm a big supporter of the police. I mean, everybody in Chicago knows that I'm a big supporter of the police. Yes, there are some bad apples. It's a small percentage. We don't stereotype police because of the actions of one person, the way sometimes it's being done. But I have to say that uh, there are instances where members of the police are like the rest of America and their anger overcomes their logic. And they look at us and they say, it's your fault. You, what did you and I have to do with September 11th? We had nothing to do with it, right? I, I served during the Vietnam War. You're an American citizen. You pay your taxes. You live a law-abiding lives. Um, we support everything American, and yet every time something happens in the Middle East, and I don't know if it's like this in any other ethnic group, an Arab or a Muslim does something someplace else, and you and I are immediately front and center. The media calls me up and they say, hey, Ray, what did you think of the terrorist attack today? What did they expect me to say? Oh, yeah, you know, go, 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 or you know, of course I'm upset. I'm an American. We're both American. Right. How do we overcome that? And how serious is that still a problem today, 20 years later? You know, it's it's still a serious problem. There was a, a report just published the other day. I'm not sure who put it out, and I'll email it to you, where it shows that more people today, 20 years after 9-11, view Islam and Arabs as a threat than immediately after 9-11. So this PR machine, this campaign against us over the past 20 years has been somewhat successful on their front. They've, they've found a way to turn some other part of the population against us. But what we have to do is continue pushing back through our, you know, through our work. We, we have to control the narrative. We have to be front and center when it comes to media, when it comes to our own reporting, when it comes to uh, putting our image out there. We have to respond uh, in different ways. And we have to be involved, I think, on all levels of governance, not just running for you know, Congress in D.C. or state legislature, but also being involved in your city council races, mayoral races, even your neighborhood, you know, your neighborhood uh, uh, association. So we have to be involved on all levels uh, and put ourselves out there. And I think that's one thing we've done right over the past 20 years is this civic engagement, 
it's getting involved with all assets of, you know, with all parts of government, um, working with law enforcement to help them understand who we are, um, educating them on hate crime laws and on, on different issues as well. So we've really grown the past 20 years. We still have a long way to go, but I think we're, we're going in the right direction. You know, living in Chicago, as I do, uh, the Chicagoland region, uh, race and ethnicity are the building blocks of politics. And I wonder, it, has the problem been that it, despite everything and the talent we have in the Arab American community and the Muslim community, still we don't seem, and I'm not sure as we're not effectively telling our story or we're effectively telling our story, but it's being blocked by uh, our society. I, where, where do you think the problem is? Are we doing enough to tell my neighbor who has so many problems? He has to pay a mortgage. He has two cars. His kids are going to college. And now he needs to understand what my problems are. Am I doing enough to educate him so when there is a terrorist attack, he doesn't yell and scream at me and say, why did I do it? Or why did my people do it the way they did after September 11th? I, I think we've done enough of that. I think if people want information on Arabs and on Muslims and even on you know South Asian communities, it's out there. I mean, if they want to educate themselves, it's out there. I think the one thing we as a community need to understand, you know, after 20 years after 9-11 is this. And I learned this through the past year or so during the pandemic, while we would do our virtual town halls with our, our uh, chapters across the country, the one thing I often heard was, hey, how do you want me to worry about, you know, Islamophobia, anti-Arab sentiment when I can't even put food on my kid's table to eat at dinner time? The issues impacting regular Americans are impacting us, and we need to be involved in those conversations. When it comes to healthcare, when it comes to the economy, when it comes to responsible policing, business uh, advancements and opportunities, we need to be involved in those conversations. We've done a good job of being involved on everything else, you know, the national security, the airport issues. Now it's time over the next 20 years to pull ourselves into the direction this country is going as a whole. We are part of this country. And, you know, what happens with this pending infrastructure bill impacts me and my, you know, and my daughter and for decades to come. What happens with police, you know, policing in Chicago and, and the direction the mayor decides to take is going to impact you and, you know, generations to come. So, we, we need to be involved in those conversations a lot more. And that's, I think, the direction we're looking to go, um, you know, over the next 20 years, not only at ADC, but as a community as well. And, and I don't think it's enough for government. And again, I, I think I have a right to demand that government do more because I'm a taxpayer. I served during the military. Um, you know, I'm as American as everybody else. I don't care what they say about whether they like Arabs or Muslims. And half of the Americans, I probably the majority of the Americans don't even realize I'm Christian. They always come up and say you're Muslim. And I'm proud to be confused as a Muslim. I'm as a Christian Arab, I'm basically Muslim by culture. And I'm so proud of that, that I, I'm in that odd situation, pushed in it by the lack of knowledge that, you know, a woman came up to me right after September 11th and said, I can't believe you abandoned your Christian faith to become an Arab. And I looked at her and I said, you know, this is why I'm getting into stand-up comedy. There's no answer to that type of sad, naive, I don't want to say ignorant, like to be mean to her, but it was an ignorant thing to say. And I don't think she realized that she thought she was just making a nice observation. Right. No, you're right. And now that problem is even worse with social media and misinformation campaigns. So, you know, if, for every, you know, ounce of energy we put in, there's a, a whole complete system and, and algorithm against us. So 
it's definitely more challenging now to get our message out there. I think on all fronts, on, on the health front, on the economic front, I think we're see, you know, we, we've seen this play out over the past four or five years, but fake news and misinformation. I mean, that is a, that's a great uh, uh, challenge for us. And that's going to do us some damage, I think, and some harm towards the community. Yeah. I personally, I hate, because I've been in journalism for so many years, I hate the idea of any kind of censorship. I'd rather see the ugliness so it can be identified than have the ugliness pushed aside and pretend it's not there. Because when we pretend something's not there, as you know, with ADC, that we can't fight the anti-Arab hatred or the anti-Islamophobia and anti-Muslim hatred if we don't see it. And if it's pushed out of sight, sometimes how do we know it's happening? How are things today, 20 years after September 11th, uh, far better, okay, still far to go? Where would you rate it, the situation for Arabs and Muslims in this country? Look, I think... It, it's definitely far, you know, it's definitely far better in that, you know, we've organized ourselves as a community. I think there's a better understanding of who we are as a community. I think the backlash, when you really break down the hatred towards the community, we can pinpoint where it's coming from. We, we understand the misinformation campaigns. We understand the machine and the money that's behind it now. And that, that you're right, that makes it easier to attack. But we have to organize and counter that. And I think we've pulled ourselves into a conversations on, again, almost every level of governance across the country. You have people, you know, Arabs and Muslims and, and Arab Christians as well involved in running for races uh, on traditional platforms, whether they be Republican or Democrat or independent. They're running on platforms that have nothing to do with their race or ethnicity. They just happen to be an Arab running for this position. Right. But their qualifications are, you know, f you know far more than just being an Arab. And I think that's important. We are seeing more of that, but there is still a little bit more work for us to do. And don't we have to see ourselves in the mirror of American life? I mean, when I turn on the TV, I rarely still, still, I rarely see Arab. Now, more, I, I notice that there's more emphasis to understand Muslims. Um, and again, I'm not being critical of Muslims, but they have benefited, I think, um, from the uh, post-September 11th world, people tend to talk about us as Muslim rather than Arab. And, and I'm not saying that that's a problem, but the fact that Arabs, the Arab identity is being pushed down a little bit because of that, uh, and not because of Muslims, but because of the way Americans look at it. It's kind of a touchy topic because, you know, in our community, if you start talking Christian and Muslims, yeah. they say, hey, we're all the same. Why do we got to talk about them? But we're not all the same to Americans. We're all no, the we're, same to us. Yeah, we're not all the same to. I mean, we are. The, the, the Americans look at us as the same. Whether yes. you're Arab, Muslim, Christian, Pakistani, whether you're, you know, Afghan, they look at us as all the same. And, and even the perpetrator of a hate crime looks at us as the same. There has to be. There is a differentiation, of course, between Arab and Muslims, and how get, that gets portrayed in the media and, and the factors behind that. I think that's a longer conversation we can have. But the one thing I would say is. The, there has been a coming back to the Arab culture and identity within the community. There's been a lot more pride and understanding in who we are uh, because of 9-11 and particularly because of the Arab Spring and what happened you know, afterwards. There's been more of a coming back to the Arab identity and the Arab culture. And I think that's something we'll continue seeing. Um, look, you can be a proud Arab and a proud Muslim, a proud Arab and a proud Christian. I mean, you can, you can be all that's the beauty of being Arab is we are diverse. We have a rich background religiously, culturally, and 
that's going to continue. And I think we're, we're seeing a lot more people coming back to the, um, you know, to the culture and to the identity and, and, and pushing it forward over the next few years. Do you think our, do you think our internal fighting in our community gets, goes a little too far or is that not an issue anymore? You know, there's always going to be internal fighting. Um, sometimes it does go too far. Uh, we're, an emo- I, we're an emotional people. What are we're we an emotional do, right? people. But look, I think, you know, in this country as a whole now, you know, you have, uh, you know, you have the woke culture and you have the cancel culture on both sides that will, you know, looking to bring people down for a mistake they may have made 10, 15 years ago, regardless of how remorseful or how much they apologize. And I think that's a, that's just an era, you know, uh, where we are in this country and we're going to have to navigate it. And I don't think we're immune to that. I think we see that in the community. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's, you know, most of the time it's wrong. Uh, I'm a true believer in the, you know, doctrine of redemption. I think people should have an opportunity to redeem themselves before their careers are over or before they're, you know, canceled off the scene. But this is just where we are. And we, we, we have to navigate it. And I think we'll get through this and mature through this phase. And uh, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee is one of the leading, if not the leading organization fighting for the rights of Arabs and Muslims, addressing discrimination. You're a non-political organization. You're there to kind of deal with issues that not just impact Arabs and Muslims, but Americans who, because it impacts them when someone discriminates against somebody, it has an impact on their lives. What does it look, what's the terrain like in the U.S.? Is there a place that's more, uh, I don't want to say dangerous, but uh, has more anti-Arab or anti-Muslim issues uh, than others? Is there a place in the U.S. where, wow, these people love us so much, uh, there isn't one person that dislikes an Arab? Uh, you know, what's the terrain like in terms of where we're welcome and where we're not welcome? Look, I think it's important to separate between, you know, government actions and the people on the ground. I think with social media, with everything being in our face all the time on Twitter and you're reading, you kind of get the perception that we're hated or that problems are, you know, exacerbated where you, you, you're seeing, you see one incident and you think this is happening all over, for example, the state of Florida, where it's actually not true. A lot of these situate, a lot of these incidents are isolated. The person may be somebody that has a history of doing this, um, but we are, you know, pretty much like across the country. Now, my concern is if this misinformation campaign, if these campaigns on social media keep going further and further, we're going to start seeing a lot more people radicalized and a lot more people, you know, becoming perpetrators of hate crimes. And that's that could happen anywhere. It's not a single state. Do you think the media plays a major role or a minor role in fueling the problems that we face as an ethnic and religious and national group? Well, I think, you know, to answer that question, I think we have to look at how, you know, the definition of media has changed over the past 20 years. That's true. I think now you have, you know, a lot of these right wing, far right wing news outlets that, you know, are they are responsible for what's happening. And um, look, and I'm not saying that the left wing media or the, the left leaning media is not, res- you know, they're responsible as well. They have their issues. And I think the one commonality between four administrations over the past 20 years is the war on terror and the way they treat Arabs. Not one of them has changed from Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden. They've all treated us the same. Not one of them got rid of sections of the Patriot Act or surveillance or changed their tones or didn't talk about us through a national security lens. So it's still, you know, happening even with a Democrat in office. Uh, But the change in media, the change in outlet, you know, media outlets, social media, 
this is something we as a community need to take, you know, keep an eye on, be involved in, and try to use those same tools to our advantage. And, and I know I'd mentioned to you uh, in an email that in Chicago, we're seeing yeah. this disturbing trend of uh, uh, the city has put together a task force of police and inspectors because they think by targeting uh, not just Arab-owned, but ethnic-owned grocery stores in the heart of where the violence is, they're going to somehow uh, discourage the street gang members from coming out and shooting people. And I'm sure it's a national story, even in Washington, D.C., that Chicago's violence has skyrocketed. Um, over Labor Day weekend, 61 people were shot and six people were killed, including a little boy who was sitting in his house getting his hair braided when a bullet came right through the window and killed him in front of the, you know, the friend. It was just amazing. Um, these, these are troubling trends that have to be examined. Um, but are there other issues like that around the country that we should be aware of, that we should pay attention to? Well, look, it's, um, we had 63 shootings over the weekend in, in D.C., so there's definitely something. Wow. And why yeah. is it that they treat Chicago worse? <laughs> Not to say uh, that I want to. Uh, you know, it's but... it's yeah, it's it's horrible. And there's definitely something that needs to that needs to happen in, in a real grown up conversation between everybody that cares about this issue. And I was reading the, the email you sent this morning about the um, what's happening with the business owners. And this is where, you know, it's going to take some creative solutions. Uh, to bring the business owners down and sit down with the with the mayor's office and say, hey, here's what we can do. We had a similar situation in Detroit years ago, where and, and they implemented a, a great program, which I can email you about. Um, maybe that's something uh, that can be done. But there has to be these conversations. And look, the and it's funny you brought this up now, but the, the discrimination against Arab business owners, that's one thing we also saw after 9-11. Right. And this is a quiet discrimination, you know, where it's very passive where they come in, they check a few things and they say, well, we're going to shut you down for a week. We're going to shut you down for two weeks for something very minor. Right. And there's ways to resolve that. You know, they, you don't need to shut down the business, but the business owner needs to understand, Hey, I need to take some measures. If there's, you know, a crime spree happening in front of my, my shop or my gas station, maybe I need to put up brighter lights. Maybe I need to put up HD cameras to, you know, see what's in other happening. words, that person can help, but that person can help, but you don't, don't help them of being the problem. Yeah, they're not the problem. You know, right. you, you can. They're a problem when there's blight, when there's you know, and we can get you know, it's a longer conversation. But when right. they, when they, but if they take care of their business and work with the city, right. I don't think you shut them down. No, Abed, listen, thank you so much for joining us. What's the website at ADC again for our listeners who want to visit and get sure. more information? Very easy. It's adc.org. Perfect. Abed Ayub, our uh, legal uh, advisor at the uh, uh, American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. Abed, it's always a pleasure to have you on the radio show. We appreciate your support. You. And I want to thank everybody that's watching. Watching Again, we appreciate that. And we will see you next week uh, here at WNZK AM 690 in Detroit and WDMV AM 700 in Washington, D.C., and streaming live at facebook.com slash Arab News. I'm Ray Hanania. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you, Ray. WNZK has available a few good...